Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Is this idea of surrender. Uh, we've, we started a sermon series last week called Goliath Must Fall, uh, talking about the uh, classic story of David and Goliath. And um, the big takeaway from last week's sermon was that you are not David um, in the story of David and Goliath. Um, it's not about you having to buck up, toughen up, step up. Um, it's really about what Christ has already done for us, that really Christ is the hero in the story um, of our redemption. Christ is the, the David that has come to our battlefield and, and overcome the works of the devil and overcome our enemy for us. But the truth is we're still dealing um, with giants in our lives. You can be in the land, you can be in the church, you can be even a Christian and still have some things coming against you, stopping you from moving forward. And so that's what we're talking about here um, as, as we're continuing to preach. And so I wanted to show that video to you today just to sort of preach from that video um, because that really is the secret uh, to defeating the giants in our lives is being able to seek the kingdom of God and submit to the kingdom of God. I love that. Seeking and submitting. That's, that's the power uh, of the kingdom. Uh, but now I want to preach from that. That's kind of the premise. That's the backdrop. And uh, I want to step into the story of David and Goliath again. We talked about it last week. We read a lot of the story about um, how big Goliath was, how powerful he was, and even about some of the mystical power that he possessed um, based on the legends that were written about him. Um, next week, we're going to talk a little more about Goliath's family line. The Bible tells us a little bit about where Goliath came from. The Bible tells us that Goliath had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Uh, he, was, he was a bit of a freak. And so that's... That's going to be fun. Um, but today I want to talk about the giant that many of us are facing right now is a giant of fear. That fear is really our giant. It's the, it's the thing that is holding us back. And when I say fear, I don't mean um, the feeling of fear. Uh, if you feel fear, that just means that you have a pulse. Uh, that means you're alive. Uh, if you feel anxious every now and then, if you feel, if you're, if you're actually doing anything worthwhile, you'll probably feel scared at some point. So the feeling of fear is not something that we want to get rid of um, until we lower you six feet beneath the ground. That's when you get rid of the feeling of fear. So uh, it's actually quite healthy. It's quite functional. Um, I'm teaching my kids to be, to be very afraid of snakes. Um, because snakes are dangerous. And so, you know, you show them pictures of snake bites and, and get them all freaked out about snakes so that if they see a snake, then they'll run. Uh, that's the goal of fear. Fear is going to help you make good decisions in your life. So there's a, a feeling of fear that's good, that's fine. But the kind of fear that we're talking about is really seen in the story of David and Goliath. Uh, you have David, who's, who's a young shepherd boy. Uh, he's not even a warrior. He comes in and fights Goliath. The reason why David had to come in is because everybody else who were warriors, who were trained for battle, they were immobilized by fear. And that's the kind of fear I'm talking about. It's a dysfunctional 
irrational fear. It's a fear that, that freezes you. It's a fear that immobilizes you or demoralizes you. It's the kind of fear that stops you uh, from moving forward, moving, moving forward in your life, moving forward in your relationship with God, moving forward in your relationship with others, moving forward in your service of others, moving forward in finding your calling. That kind of fear, the fear that, that you know what you ought to do, but you're, you're too afraid um, to do it. And that's exactly where Saul, the king of Israel, that's where he finds himself in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So we're going to read from the passage in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, basically, uh, the beginning of the chapter talks about how big and bad Goliath is, talks about how afraid the people are and Saul uh, is afraid. But then, then we come to a conversation uh, where David is being interviewed by King Saul. And Saul says to David, uh, what's this deal about you? You wanting to fight this giant. And David uh, says to him, I believe it's verse 32, he says, uh, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. That was a, that was a, a cornerstone passage for us last week. Let no man's heart fail um, because of him. And that's, that's something that, that, that I hope you're taking to heart, that God is stirring up courage inside of you that says, wait a minute, I'm not going to allow the giant in my life to, to cause my heart to fail. Uh, I'm going to get back in the game. I'm going to get back into the fight. I'm going to allow, I'm going to take heart, I'm going to take courage um, because Goliath must fall and fear must fall. The giant of fear must fall. And that's what David said. He said, let no man's heart fail because of him, your servant. I, David, the, Beth the Bethlehem, the Bethlehemite, the shepherd from Bethlehem, I will go and fight this Philistine. But look at Saul's response. Saul uh, says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and to fight with him. And this is what fear does to you. Uh, Saul is not on the battlefield. Saul is in his tent. Saul is hiding in his tent. The guy that got anointed and appointed to be dealing with the enemies of the people of God, the king, the guy who's supposed to be out there leading the charge, he's hiding in his tent. And this, this shepherd boy comes to him and says, don't worry, I'm going to take this giant out. And his first response, I think is much like many of our first responses, uh, he says, there's no way that you could do this. He's looking at the situation, he's calculated the situation, and he says, look, little shepherd kid, you are not able. This is the conclusion reached through living in fear. But, but, but you have to understand that Saul wasn't always this way. Saul wasn't always the fearful king, the cowardly king, hanging out in his tent, interviewing 17-year-old boys for a job that he himself ought to be doing. He wasn't always cowardly. He was, if, if you only know Saul from the story of David and Goliath, you really might think that, man, this guy was, was, was just, he was no good. He was a bad king. But actually, he was a pretty awesome king. He was one of the greatest kings that the nation of Israel has ever had. Number one, he was the first king. So he's the guy who really was responsible for wrangling together these 12 nomadic tribes, these 12 disconnected, disjointed members of, of one big family that were all trying to hold down the land of Canaan, uh, he was the one that was the guy who kind of brought them all together. And God picked him, God handpicked him. So, you know, put that on, on your resume too. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I'm the guy that God picked. Like out of everybody else, God chose 
me. God chose Saul. So Saul is not uh, a weak king. He's not somebody who, who likes to push off his responsibility on other people. He's not always looking for the easy way out. In fact, he was a warrior. The Bible says he was head and shoulders over every other man in Israel. He was the quarterback of the football team. They didn't actually have football teams back then, but just, just, just in case you're looking for... But you, you, you kind of get the picture. He was the good-looking guy. He was the, the soldier. He was, he was great at hand-to-hand -hand combat. He was the king, and he was not afraid of a fight. Uh, you see, if, if you just rewind, we're in 1 Samuel 17. If you go back to 1 Samuel 13... You'll see a king, Saul, who is charging after every enemy in his path. He becomes king, right? And, and uh, he's got a little issue because all of the tribes, they're used to kind of governing themselves. And the eight northern tribes say, uh, awesome, we love having King Saul. We think he's great. They're enthusiastic about their support for him. But the southern four tribes are a little less enthusiastic. They're kind of like, meh. They, 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 they sort of liked their life, and that's because they had made a deal with their neighbors, the Philistines. Now, uh, Goliath is a Philistine, and um, when we find them in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, they're fighting in southern, in southern Israel. And the reason why they're fighting in, in the land of Judah in southern Israel is because Judah especially had made a deal, along with the other uh, 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 groups in Israel, had made a deal with the Philistines since they were the closest neighbors to the Philistines, they said, look, if you don't kill us, then we'll pay taxes to you every year and um, we'll give you all of our weapons and, um, and anytime we, we need any kind of our, our plows and, 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 and shovels and axes sharpened, we'll come to you to sharpen those and you'll charge us an exorbitant amount of money. And that's, that's the, the arrangement that they had made. And I find it so interesting because that is, there, there is kind of a, a balance to bondage like spiritual bondage, there's a kind of balance to it, that the enemy is restrictive, but not so restrictive that you get really, really uncomfortable. And this is the, the situation that we find ourselves in, that Saul found himself, he becomes the king, and he's got a problem, mainly, you know, the lower third of his kingdom is paying taxes, giving up all their weapons to this other country that are their neighbors. And so he has to, if he wants the kingdom to be established, if he wants to pass off a kingdom to his son, he's got to convince these guys to rise up and fight for their freedom. Get this, get this enemy out of here. But the problem is, the enemy's not, not super um, uh, obvious. The enemy's not incredibly restrictive. And this is like in our own lives. The end, there's a balance to the bondage. He allows us a certain amount of freedom so long as we pay him taxes every year. And, and, and I'm not talking about the government here. I'm talking about if you really want to know what your giant is, just pull up your Wells Fargo account and look at what is making the most withdrawals from your bank account. And there's a strong chance that your giant, that your Goliath, that your bondage is linked to that because bondage always requires money. Bondage always asks for money. And it's not just a little bit. It's a significant portion of your paycheck. Bondage gets more and more and more expensive. And, and, and to, 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 the, to the point where, where you, you become enslaved to it 
and you are you don't have enough money to rise up out of it and it takes your weapons so the enemy is fine with you having a level of Christianity so long as you never pick up the weapon of personal prayer time so long as you never engage in the weapon of personal Bible reading he, he's, there, there's a balance to the bondage, which is why people are usually okay with it, because they just want to be farmers, have a family, work on the field. They don't want to fight. And Saul's trying to convince these guys, dude, we can't live like this. And so Saul is a brilliant leader. Saul gets his son to go assassinate one of the governors of Philistia, one of the, the Philistine governors. And the Bible said that after he did that, uh, in, in, in the old King James language, it says that the Israelites became a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines because, because the Philistines took that exactly as it was meant to be taken as an act of war. So it's not some random person killing some random Philistine. No, this was the son of the king intentionally assassinating one of their governors. And, and, and if we look at, at 1 Samuel 13, we'll read about what happened at that point. The Philistines gathered, after that happened, the Philistines gathered to fight Israel. They had 3,000 chariots. Some um, manuscripts say 30,000 chariots. There's a bit of a discrepancy there. Anyway, a lot of chariots, 6,000 men to ride in them. Their soldiers were as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. In other words, we tried to count them, but we couldn't quite count how many soldiers there were. The Philistines went and camped at Michmash, which is east of Beth-Avon. And when the Israelites saw that they were in trouble. So Saul did exactly what he wanted to do. He threw a rock at the hornet's nest. He had a lot of people that were living in bondage, but because there was a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of comfort, they weren't quite ready to rise up and do anything about it. So Saul said, all right, let's go assassinate these guys so that you can see who your enemy really is. That when push comes to shove, he's not your friend. And I feel like God's doing this all over, all over the place. In many of your lives, actually, God just threw some rocks at some hornet's nest in 2017. And the hornet started spinning. And that's actually why you're in church today. Have you ever noticed that? It's like all of your life is going great, but as soon as things get difficult, that's when you decide to reach out to God. This is something that God does. This Saul's brilliant leader. He says, look, these people aren't just, I, I, I can't preach to them to stir them up. I got to do something to show them the true face of their enemy. And when the, when the Israelites saw that they were in trouble, by the way, they were not any more in trouble than they had been before. Just now they're aware of it. They're aware that the enemy is not going to be okay with any level of freedom in their life. They're aware the enemy is not going to be okay with them taking their finances back. They're, they're aware the enemy is not going to be okay with them taking their family back, with their taking up their weapons again. The enemy is ticked. The hornet's nest is buzzing, and the Israelites saw that they were in trouble. And one of two things happened. When you figure out that you're in trouble, when you figure out that you've been living in bondage, when you understand the enemy for what he actually is, he is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy from you. He will either do it slowly through, through compromise and comfort, or he'll do it quickly through an assassination attempt. If you rise up to try to fight against him, when you realize you're in trouble, this is what we do. Fight. I think we call it fight or flight nowadays. This is what happened. When the Israelites saw they're in trouble, number one, some of them went to hide in caves and bushes among the rocks 
and in pits and in wells. Like they found old dugout wells where the water was dry and they got their family down in there to live there. Going on to the, to the next slide, some Hebrews even went across the Jordan River to the land of Gad and Gilead, I guess to stay with relatives. But Saul, okay, so this is Saul's plan. He's throwing the rock at that hornet's nest. Saul stayed at Gilgal and all the men who were ready to fight came to him. All the men who were ready to fight came and they were shaking with fear at Gilgal. In many ways, I feel like City Chapel is kind of like Gilgal. It's the place that people come when they realize they're in trouble. And in some, to some extent, I think the true church around the world is basically Gilgal. It's the place where when you realize you're in trouble and you don't want to run from the trouble, you actually want to confront the trouble, you actually want to defeat the giant in your life, this is where you come. Because Gilgal was the most holy place in all of Israel. It was the place where they would worship God. It's the place where the prophets stayed. It was, it was supposed to be the most holy piece of land in all of Israel and so it's kind of like coming to church it's like people come to church because things are bad and they know that God can make them better and that's exactly what he's doing he's bringing them together in order to seek the blessing of God over the battle that they're about to face so congratulations to all of you who are here today you made it to Gilgal <laughs> it was a long trip half of your friends are in some well somewhere or a bush <laughs> hiding out on Facebook just checking to see what we're teaching what kind of cult we are but you you made it congratulations um, uh, that's the good news the bad news is once you get to Gilgal that's where you face the real enemy the enemy that is greater than the enemy in front of you and that is the enemy inside of you they come to Gilgal and Saul waited seven days because Samuel, the prophet, had said to him that he would meet him after seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the soldiers began to leave. One of the most difficult things is to wait on God at Gilgal. It's one thing to gather at Gilgal because you're motivated by fear, but waiting actually reveals your motivation. And it's interesting that all of these, he, he amassed an army because they were afraid of what the enemy would do to them if they didn't fight. And now that same motivation is bubbling to the surface as they wait. And the same thing that brought them to Gilgal is often the same thing that pushes them out. They began to leave Saul because they were quaking with fear. It's the waiting. Waiting on God. This is where you, you first see the giant of fear in your life. You would never see the giant of fear if you never realized there was a problem. If, if God never revealed to you that this bondage was not his plan for your life or for your family or for your church or for your region, you would, you would never really be exposed to fear. So in a way, fear is a good, a good uh, sign that you're actually, that you're woke. Is that weird for a white guy to say? I don't know. But it, uh, uh, in a spiritual sense, you're woke. I mean, it means, it, means you, it means you figured some stuff out, right? And you can get way too deep into that. But anyway, you read that however you like. But, but, but it's, it's, it's a sign. Like The fact that you have fear of this enemy is a recognition that you see it for what it really is. You see that it's damaging your family. It's damaging your life. It's stealing your freedom. And it's stealing God's glory from your life. 
life, that God is not being represented. And so that fear can either drive you to flee or to fight. And when you fight, you come to Gilgal to wait on God's blessing, to seek God's favor, to ask for God's help, and then nothing. <laughs> God says he'll meet you there, but then nothing. I don't know if any of you have ever had to wait for something, or maybe you are waiting. This is not a time to look at your boyfriend. Uh, maybe you are waiting for something. <laughs> Valentine's Day is 10 days away, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, maybe you are waiting. I don't know, but the, the, the difficulty was not the waiting. The difficulty was that while they were waiting, their enemy was working. You know what I mean? Like, it's, if, if it was just an army coming together, hey, let's hang out for seven days. Let's, let's have some, some, some grilled cheese sandwiches. Let's talk about what we're gonna, how, how we're going to fight these guys. But the problem is that while they are waiting, they know their enemy is amassing their forces. 6,000 soldiers just came in yesterday. They brought in 30 or 3,000, a lot of chariots the day before. Um, they're, they're, they're shipping in armor and, and spears and swords. And by the way, these guys, remember, had given up all their weapons, so the Israelites actually didn't have any swords. The Bible says there were no swords in Israel except the one that, that the king had and his son. Got two swords, roughly 600 guys versus 6,000 guys, chariot swords, the whole deal. I mean, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you have any chance, you have to act quickly. You have to move quickly. You can't sit around and let them get their swords even sharper. Like, what are we doing? We're waiting here at Gilgal while, while our enemy is preparing his plan of attack. Our only hope is a surprise attack. Our only hope is something. But, but no, we are waiting here while the enemy sharpens his sword. We don't even have a sword. We got shovels, rakes, a hoe, <laughs> yeah, pickaxe. I mean, this is all we got. And we're sitting around here while well, they're making their swords even sharper. And that's why people started leaving them, because this dude can't even start a prayer meeting. How is he going to lead us into battle? I mean, come on, man. Like, like we got to get going here. Don't you know you got to strike while the iron's hot? Haven't you ever heard that saying? Dude, he took the iron out of the fire, put it in the freezer for seven days. I mean, the, the, the momentum is just gone right out of the place. Everybody's wondering, does this dude even know what he's doing? He got us together, and we can't even pray. We can't even get God's blessing. We're in trouble. I don't know if you've ever had to wait while your enemy works, but it's tricky. It's difficult. While the, while, while, while the enemy, the, the Bible says no weapon formed against us will prosper, right? But that, that, that's, that's exciting. The end part is exciting, but the beginning says no weapon formed against us. In other words, there will be weapons that will be formed against us. And sometimes God makes you wait within earshot of the weapons being formed. And the enemy's sharpening the sword of loneliness, and you're 32 and you're still not married, and he's sharpening it, and, 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 and he's looking at you, and he's, you know, notching your initials in this. So, and, and you're over here with your, with, your, with your shovel, and you're just waiting. For God to show up to do something. 
I mean, you, 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 you already enlisted for the fight. You showed up at Gilgal. You, you made yourself available, and now God's not even doing anything in your life. And, 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 and now you're a little bit older, and the years are passing you by. And, 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 and the sort of loneliness or the sort of, of depression or the sort of anxiety or the sort of financial stress or the sort of a doctor's report is being sharpened. Well, you have to hear it, and God's not responding. The loudest thing in your ear is the sharpening of your enemy's sword. It's tough. It, I mean, we, we, it's real easy to tell these guys, boy, yeah, I wish you would have had faith there, Saul. But I mean, like, 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 this is not easy. Remember, it was Saul's genius that got them in this mess. It was Saul's brilliance that got everybody on his team. And now God's saying, ah, just wait. All that momentum you, you occurred, all the, the, the fight. I mean, you guys worked on your own cheer and everything. And, 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 and you're just going to have to just now sit for seven days. And at the end of seven days, Samuel doesn't come and people start leaving. And this is what Saul does. This is where Saul fails. The reason why Saul is fearful in chapter 17 is because he failed in chapter 13. Our failures often undermine our confidence. Our character, our lack of character, steals our confidence. The reason why he's holed up in a tent, unwilling to fight the enemy in chapter 17, is because of chapter 13 right here. The soldiers began to leave, and so Saul said, Bring me the whole burnt offering, which, by the way, that's, that's the whole burnt offering is, is a particular kind of offering that he's legally not allowed to offer, only the high priest and also the fellowship offerings. Then Saul offered the whole burnt offering and just as he finished, like he said, amen. And then Samuel arrived. I wonder, I wonder how many of us give up just before God was ready to arrive. How many times have we, I mean, just seconds, we, if we would have waited just 30 more minutes, just one more day, if we would have held on, I mean, just as he finished, Samuel shows up and Saul goes to greet him and Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul answered not what he did, but what he was thinking. He doesn't tell him what he did. He says, he says well, I saw the soldiers leaving me. And you, like you weren't here, like you said you would be. <laughs> I saw the soldiers, you weren't here, and the Philistines were gathering. I could hear them sharpening their swords. They were at Micmash. They were just over that hill. And so this is what I thought. Now, he doesn't say what I did. He says, he says this is what I thought. The Philistines will come against me at Gilgal. Now, this, this is where he is. He said, I thought the Philistines... We're on the other side of the hill. They were coming against me, and I haven't even asked for God's approval yet. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. That was the illegal one that he should not have done. Samuel said, you acted foolishly. Turn to somebody and say, don't be stupid. Don't be. <laughs> you don't even want to do that, do you? Okay, fine. Don't, if, if you're married to them, don't say that. But I'm just saying, I've always thought it was interesting how Samuel rebuked his logic. He didn't attack his character. He rebuked his logic. And I think that's because that's what Saul is offering. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, this is what I was thinking. And Samuel says, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, your logic is seriously flawed. 
You, you, you're foolish. This is dumb. This is ignorant. This is this is this is bad logic. And honestly, if there's one if there's one evidence of fear taking hold inside of your life, it is it is the evidence of stupidity. With all the love of Christ that I can share with you, it is the evidence of stupidity. And I say that with grace and with mercy and, and Jesus smothered all over it. it. We can work it into a K-Love song at some point. But, but it's just, it's plain stupidity. It's ignorant. It's dumb. It doesn't make sense, Saul. The, the, your logic is twisted. It's, it's upside down. Something doesn't quite, doesn't quite fit. You acted foolishly. You haven't obeyed the command of the Lord your God. If you had obeyed him, uh, he goes on to say, if you had, man, that's the biggest, that's the hardest statement ever. If you had, um, then the Lord, go on to the next slide, then the Lord would have made your kingdom continue always, but now your kingdom will not continue. Isn't it interesting? The very thing Saul set out to do, he lost it. You've got to be careful that you don't give up what you want most for what you want now. He said, it's stupid. You gave up the kingdom to keep a couple hundred guys. Like, this is ignorant, Saul. This doesn't make sense. The, the, the way that you, the price, the heavy price you paid for the allegiance of a couple hundred guys who wanted to leave you anyway. He said, this doesn't make sense. God would have established your kingdom. God would have taken care of you. God was coming through for you. He was on the way. I mean, I, mean, I was on the way. Samuel was making the journey from his house to Gilgal. He was on the way and Saul blew it because he, he assumed. See, this is another reason why he was ignorant because he was guessing. Saul, Saul didn't get a visual on the Philistines coming up over that hill. He didn't see a single soldier coming his way. But fear was in his mind and in his ear saying, oh man, they're just around. They're, they're, they're going to cause those soldiers. You know they're on their way. You know they're right around the hill. You know they're right around the corner. You know failure's right around the corner. You know dis, dis, despair's right. Divorce is right around the corner. I mean, you know where this is going. You know what's coming around that hill. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And he made a call off of a guess. He never saw a single soldier but he was guessing that the Philistines were coming to Gilgal. They weren't even coming to Gilgal. Samuel says, man, don't be stupid. Don't make big decisions on a guess. Get a visual before you make a decision. All he had to do was wait for a visual. Samuel was on the other side of that hill. I wonder how many times we've thought that our enemy is just around the corner when really victory is just around the corner and we give up off of something that is just a guess. It's just a hunch. It's just, it's just the, our negativity brewing up inside of us and we lay down our, 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 our ability to fight because we just assume we've already lost and your enemy isn't even there. So my sermon should have been titled, Don't Be Stupid, Stop Being Stupid, Quit Being Stupid. Stupid. It's, it's, it doesn't even make sense. You're, you're going you're gonna to make major decisions on a guess? Yeah, that's what fear does. When fear rises up inside of you, you start, you start imagining all the worst case scenarios. You start imagining all the, and, 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 it's, and it's amazing. Some of us are afraid of defeat. Some of us are afraid of failure, so we don't even try. Some of us are afraid of rejection, so we don't even reach out. Some of us are, are, are afraid of being around other people and, and being afraid of vulnerability, so we don't even give somebody else the chance to be kind. We assume they're not going to be kind. We see the enemy, we don't even get a visual on it. 
And we just make concrete decisions based on a hunch, based on a guess. Man, some, some of us are afraid not of, not of failure, but we're, 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 we're more afraid of success. Because we're a little more used to making excuses for our failure. We're used to living on loserville. But, but, but when we start succeeding, that's what we don't really know what to do with. And so we self-sabotage our success because we don't know how to keep up success. All we know is how to apologize for stuff. We don't know how to walk in victory. And so as soon as things start going well, we feel like, man, we got, we got, we got, we got to do something to mess this up because it's looking too good right now. But, but it's this fear. What, it's a guess. The enemy's not even there. You're scared of the dark, man. There's nothing in the dark. Except Samuel. It's crazy to me. Samuel says, wait a minute. You thought, the Philistine, you thought, you thought I was the Philistines. <laughs> I'm one guy. Don't even have a weapon. And you thought I was the... Man, so many times God is so much closer to us than our enemies are. And we discount the presence of God because our mind is on our enemies. And we just assume, man, they're right around the corner. Boy, failure's right around the corner. It's just this, I mean, every, every time something starts going good, it's going to go bad. Every time, every, every time I take it one step forward, it's going to be five steps backward. And Samuel says, man, that's stupid. You, you, are, you are working with flawed logic. You need a visual. You need, you need a visual. If the enemy's over that hill, look over the hill. One of the greatest ways to defeat fear in your life is to look it in the face. So the enemy's over there, huh? Okay, let's send a spy over there to, to, to get a visual. Just look at it. Okay, so, 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 so if you lose your job, your life's going to fall apart, right? All right, let's just assume, let's pretend that your job is lost. Now what are you going to do? Fear only works in the dark. Fear only works on the other side of the mountain that you can't see. You're only afraid of stuff you can't see. This is, this is the greatest fear. It grabs a hold of your heart and it says, oh man, you don't know what's on the other side. It's really bad, really, really, really bad. No, it's Samuel. God is on the other side of that hill. God is making his way toward him. God, his deliverance is on the other side of that hill. And he mistakes his deliverance for disaster because he's allowed fear to take root in his heart. And what he does next is... is so uh, indicative of what we do. He says, you know, the men were leaving me. The Philistines were coming. You weren't here. So I offered worship myself. He, he started doing religious things with worry in his heart. He started doing worship with worry his worship was motivated by worry. You can be at Gilgal worshiping. I mean, he's, he's got the altar. He, he, if you look at it from the outside, you think, wow, this guy is super spiritual. Look at this. He's sacrificing the animals. He's dedicating it to God. He's seeking God's blessing. He's doing all the right things. He's raising his hand. He's praying. He's doing the right things. But Saul tells Samuel that in his heart, the reason he was doing it is to keep those guys around. You can be in church doing all the right things, but worry, worry, it 
it redirects your worship. You may be worshiping this way, but if your heart is pulled by worry, then your real worship is not going vertical, it's going horizontally. And this is, this, is, this is the danger of being a Gilgal going through religious practices and allowing worry to settle in your heart. There was, uh, there's, there's, there, there's, there's a girl in our church, she's not here today for me to tease her, but she, 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 she told me um, during the fast, she said that she was, for the 21 days, she was fasting worry. And I told her, don't be stupid. That's why. <laughs> uh, I, I, I told her, I said, you can't fast worry. That's, you can't do that. Like, that's not a fast. Fast is giving up something that you normally would have in order to be a sacrifice to God. But Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not worry. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't like, hey, here's a good idea. No, it was do not worry about your life. And he relates that. He connects it to what you believe about God. Because your worry and your worship are always, are always connected. And so, you know, you can't really fast from worrying because um, that's not a fast. You know, that's like me telling my wife I'm going to fast from adultery. You know, 21 days, no cheating for Pastor Harry. You know, I'm just going to pat myself on the back for that. Man, January was a good month. I'll tell you what, my marriage was awesome. And I'm just trying to survive February now. You know what I'm saying? You, you, like, that doesn't work. You don't fast adultery. No. I mean, you, <laughs> or you get divorced in February. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not how that but, but that's, what, that's what worry is. It's spiritual adultery. It's you cheating on Jesus. Like you're doing the worship thing, but you're doing it for someone else. It's amazing. Saul is chasing. The affection of his heart is not on the king of kings. It is on people who are ready to leave him. That's what, that's what worry does. It gets you so obsessed with people that aren't even loyal to you in the first place that you will go against the one who is loyal to you. You will, you will go against the one who can help you. You will reject the one who is able to save your little 600 guys against 6,000. Your only hope, you will turn against him to keep them. This is worry-motivated worship. You come to church, you raise your hand, and really you're just trying to to keep somebody around. You're trying to keep something around. You're coming to God so that hopefully he can make sure your job doesn't fall through because if you lost your job, you don't know what you would do. In your worship, your affection is really pulled to your job. It's really pulled to your spouse. It's really pulled to your kids. It's really pulled in all of these other directions. And you're using God, using your worship of God to keep this stuff. And God says, it's not how it works. That's not how I roll. I want your worship because I'm worthy. I want you to acknowledge my worth. See, uh, he wanted his king, Saul, to have a king. He wanted his king to have a king because he's the king of kings. And so even though you're the king of your life and you're the king of your home, you're the king of your relationship, you're the king of your finances, every king needs to have a king. Every king needs to have a king of kings who they submit to, who they yield to. They yield to his timing. I think it's Psalm 31 that says, My times are in your hands. 
My times are in your hand. I yield to your timing. God often makes us wait, not to scare us, but to allow fear to bubble to the surface so that we can see what it really is, so that he can come and skim it off the surface and throw it in the trash to remove these idols from our lives, to remove our desire to please people and our desire to bring all of this stuff, keep all of this stuff that we think that we need. And he says, no, the one thing you need is me. That's what true worship is, is acknowledging the sufficient and supremacy of Jesus, that I must have God. These people are wonderful and the things that, that he blesses me with are good, but I must have God. I must have God in my marriage. I must have God in my life. I must have God. I don't need to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I must have God. I don't need to have this amount of money in the bank account. I must have God. And God allows people to start walking from your life that you don't really need anyway. They're not really in it for you. They're not really your friends anyway. If they won't wait with you, let them walk. Why are, you, why are you chasing after the, the favor of somebody who can't even really help you? Dudes don't even have swords. They got shovels and rakes. I mean, is it really that valuable? I mean, are we really talking this big of, I mean, no. These guys, no. Your leadership, Saul, your, the, the foundation of your kingdom is not based on how well you can convince these 200 guys to stick with you. It's based in the victory that God wants to deliver to you. And the object of your worry will always steal the affection of your worship. It'll pull away your heart. And it causes you to have spiritual adultery. Psalms uh, 31 says, how great is your goodness. <laughs> this is what worship is. It's not extolling the goodness of other people in your life or the necessity of, of their contributions. But how great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you. So the greatest way to conquer the giant of fear in your life is to not, not remove all fear, but to change the object of your fear. Instead of fearing this unknown, unseen thing that's going to get you, the boogeyman in your head, you fear... God and you fear what he thinks about you and you, you fear him deserting you and, and, and not in a way that like he's going to desert you at any given moment but in a way that's like Saul you do whatever it takes to wait they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength they will mount up with wings like eagles they will run and not be weary they will walk and not faith David said wait on the Lord and he will strengthen your heart you will be of you will have courage you will overcome fear in your life when you choose to only fear God you know as, as one of the great politicians said we have nothing to fear but fear itself and that's not true we have nothing we ought to have nothing to fear but God himself God is the only adequate object of our fear that's what Jesus said. He said, don't fear man. Don't fear people. All they can do is kill you. God can kill you and chuck you into hell. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a Jesus quote, by the way. I'm not making it up. Like, if you don't have him, you don't have, I don't care what you have. I don't care what you make. I don't care what you drive or who you're married to. If you don't have him, you can gain the whole world and lose your own 
soul, and no one's ever actually drove that hard of a bargain with the devil. They sell their souls for a lot less. He, he says, you have stored up goodness for those who fear you, and you have given to those who trust you. You do this so that everybody can see you protect them by your presence from what people plan against them. You shelter them from evil words. Praise the Lord. His love to me was wonderful when my city was attacked. <laughs> when my city was attacked, he showed his love for me. In distress, I said, God cannot see me, but you heard my prayer when I cried out to you for help. Love the Lord, all you who belong to him. The Lord protects those who truly believe. He punishes the proud and those who have sinned. All you put your hope in the Lord, be strong and courageous. Lord, we come before you right now and we choose.